RadioInfluence.com. Why, Crush you. It's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 101260 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. Welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Kershell here, the con man behind the glass, keeping us on track, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Listen, if you want to get in touch with us, reach out. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crushperformance is our email. Let us know if you have any questions, comments, smart remarks. We love them all. Or if you have a topic or an idea you would like us to investigate, reach out to us. We answer every message we get. And we've dedicated segments, even entire episodes, to your ideas. As much as we like to get you guys thinking about things, you guys get us thinking about things. It's a beautiful relationship, and we're loving every minute of it. And on social media, you can follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. On Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, search out Crush Performance, and we'll hook you up there with the world of human performance. Hey, and on a note, our Instagram channel, I'm really trying to master this platform of social media. I tweet a little bit when we've got some interesting things to say. Uh, We're on Facebook quite regularly, mostly promoting our shows and the information behind our shows. Uh, But on Instagram, I'm trying to get a little more information out there. So have a look at it. It's Crush Performance. Uh, Let me know what you guys think. And again, if you have some information or topics you'd like us to investigate, uh, let us know. We can share it there as well. If we don't know the answers, I can almost guarantee we know somebody in our network, in the sport performance world, the business world, the research world that has those answers. And that's one of the great things from being around uh, the beautiful world of high performance sport for so long. Uh, You get to meet some incredibly amazing and smart people who just want to share information. That's what the show is all about. We've dedicated this show, Crush Performance in general, to sharing information and getting the word out. We've had some incredible guests on the show. We've had some great feedback from our listeners. We've had incredible athletes sharing their stories as we try to get this holistic viewpoint of what it takes to become a top performer. Though sport is our platform, um, there's much, much more to it than just the world of sport. I like getting this multi-dimensional, I guess, viewpoint of what high performance looks like. So whether you're a student, a musician, whether you're an artist, a chess player, whether you're a mom, dad, whether you're a business owner, a business person, whether you're an expert in your field, or whether you're an athlete, coach, uh, administrator, there's a lot to consider, and that's what we're here to get you thinking about. Because one thing that I've learned over my career is uh, you have to look under every rock and behind every corner to really get a true understanding of what's going on. And it never ends. We're constantly advancing. And that's kind of what the show is like today. Listen, the Crush Summer Tour is well underway, and it is jam-packed. I'm loving what's happening so far. Uh, we sort of kicked it off. Earlier this summer, my last trip to the Vauxhall Baseball Academy in Alberta, Canada was fantastic. This is an incredible environment into itself. For me personally, I believe it's one of the 
best high school development programs out there uh, in virtually any sport. The way they go about their business there, the way that it's so much more than baseball, the emphasis on academics and creating as many options for the players as possible makes this program very, very, very special. I'm so proud to be part of that one. Um, And then, of course, uh, the Tour Unleashed. And it was uh, an exciting ride so far. We were down at Vero Beach, an historic Dodger town, now called the Jackie Robinson Training Center. Major League Baseball has taken over that complex, and they're refurbishing it. And this is going to be a really, really exciting experiment uh, for Major League Baseball and baseball as a whole. It's going to be sort of the epicenter of domestic development for softball and baseball. There's going to be a lot of international things going on at the complex there. And I think it's just going to open up a world of opportunities. And not only that, for that community, this is an absolute gift from the baseball gods. I mean, once the Dodgers left that area, it didn't just leave a void in the baseball world, especially in the... Uh, grapefruit league in the Florida baseball landscape, it left a massive, massive hole in that community. The jobs that these organizations generate in the minor leagues and the major leagues uh, is, is impactful from an economic standpoint, also from a society standpoint, the tourism, uh, the jobs, and just the, uh, I guess the feel it brings to a community is, is sometimes underestimated, but we saw it in Vero Beach when the Dodgers left for Arizona. So it was great to be there. And that was an elite development camp for the top young softball um, players in the U.S. And, you know, with baseball back in the Olympics, softball back in the Olympics, that was a great program. I learned a lot about softball there. It is a wicked fast game, and these girls can play. The coaching staff was spectacular. These ladies know the game, and man, can they coach. It was real, real fun. And uh, Jenny Finch showed up as well, and boy, she's just a, a treat for sure. She, she is one of the great sport ambassadors out there, no question. Uh, so the trip the Vero Beach was great. And then we were in Utrecht for the first Olympic qualifier, baseball, softball qualifier with our KP Sport Drink launching it there, the official drink of the WBSC and the Olympic qualifying tournaments. Excited about this. But anytime you can get around that level of a sport performance, oh man, it is just such a great thing to see these athletes perform to see the coaches perform, to see the organizations. You know, these are the best teams representing their areas. This was the European-African qualifier. So the top uh, six teams from Europe were there and the top two teams from Africa were there. And uh, the pressure you could see over the course of the week was building and building. And as Olympic dreams uh, faded away for some teams, they built up for others and Italy walked away with it. Uh, But what an incredible... um, show of showcase of talent but also the emotional ride it reminded me of the emotional ride of international sport and that olympic sporting world is much much different than the pros it is much different than the pros from the urgency to the way the tournaments are set out and let's face it every four years you get a chance to represent your country at the biggest stage in the world which is the winter summer olympics so uh that was a ton of fun we're here in brazil right now with major league baseball helping our academy here get kicked off and this is a special environment as well just like voxel 
The players, they stay in the dorms here, they eat here, they get shuttled to school, they have tutoring, they get English classes on on uh, on site at the complex, and they train baseball here four days a week. On the weekends, they go home and play with their clubs. It is an incredible environment of development here. Six players signed pro out of here last year, and you know what? When we look back, maybe a couple of those players might have signed out of their clubs, but I think it would be really difficult without the the coaching and the direction and the development um, that the academy provides, not just in the player side, but the athlete side. And that's what I'm all about. If you go to our Instagram, I've been posting a bit from there. And one of the things that, you know, sort of rounds this whole conversation out here is, you know, the idea of organizational performance and what is it all about? Well, for sport, there is no doubt that you have to develop the athletes. The coaches are very, very limited in what they're able to do with an athlete or a player um, based on the athletic ability. You can play the game all you want, but there's going to be a point where you reach a ceiling of performance, and that is going to be primarily limited by your athletic ability. Do you need to be faster? Do you need to be stronger? Do you need more range of motion? Do you need to have better vision? Do you need to have better concentration? Do you need to eat better, sleep better, rest better, recover better, train smarter? These are all the things that go into the plan. We always say develop the athlete before you develop the player. And that's why we have our hierarchy uh, priorities when it comes to athlete development. And if you've listened to the show before, here they are again. Don't get sick of them. Trust me. Let's preach them to the world because there hasn't been anybody on the planet yet that can change my mind. These priorities are written in stone until somebody can talk me out of it or, or point me in a better direction. We're always open to new suggestions and better directions. Trust me. Everybody who knows me knows that. But right now, this is how it works. You have to start your development programs. And this doesn't, this isn't just for sport. This is how it works. Human performance across the board. You have to start your development programs based on the amount and quality of the rest and recovery your athletes, players, subjects, students, employees can get. If they cannot get Quality rest, quality recovery, you have to vary the training and the competition. Now, the, competi- the competitive schedules and the competition, that's pretty much written in stone. We're all reacting to these crazy, crazy uh, competitive schedules, but that's where athlete management comes in. You look at the schedules that are going to be enforced. You look at the time the athlete has. And depending on the age and the level of the athlete, are they working part-time jobs? Are they going to school? Are they playing multiple sports? Hopefully for the younger kids, they are playing multiple sports. And that all has to be balanced in. What we do right now, what we see across the board, even at the highest levels of sport, we try to plug in more work, plug in more work, technical, tactical work, strength and conditioning work. We try to plug it in and then we struggle to recover. And this is where the overuse injuries come in. And this is where the burnout comes in. If we start our programs based on the amount of recovery, regeneration and sleep our athletes can get, we can now plug in the workloads, whether it's on the athlete side, strength, speed, power, agility, whatever it might be, nutrition, psychology, yoga, whatever it might be on the performance side. And then also on the technical, tactical skill development side, because talent development and skill development is the big part of this. We must maximize the athlete in order to optimize playing potential.
That's just how it works. And it starts. Build your programs around recovery, regeneration. If your athletes are tired and they're working hard and their schedules have been busy, you have to decrease either the volume or the intensity of the work you're doing. You can turn skill development into recovery work. A lot of teaching, a lot of low intensity work. It can be done. It should be done. We don't do it enough. And then second, hydration, nutrition, critical components to human performance. They're second. They're second. I don't care what you eat or how you eat. Eating can help you sleep and recover better. There's no doubt about it. But if you're not setting aside the proper recovery strategies and the time, it doesn't matter what you eat you're still going to run into problems. And that's why it's second, a close second and a very, very important second. And it must happen, hydration and nutrition. Then three, posture and range of motion. We see this all the time, especially in the sports where it's dominated by one side, like golf, tennis, baseball, certainly hockey. We even see it in sports like curling. Any sport where there's one-sided Uh, uh, stresses or one-sided dominance, you're going to have imbalances in the skeleton. You need to make sure your skeleton, musculature, and even the nervous system are balanced in order to, one, reduce risk of injuries, and two, maximize performance. So that's why posture and range of motion are incredibly important, and they're number three. And then movement. Movement, movement, movement. And that's kind of what I want to talk about here uh, in the remainder of of this segment. We spent on the first day here in Brazil, we spent 55 minutes. I just try to soak up and steal as much time as humanly possible with the athletes and work with the coaches on the positional fundamentals, but teaching movement. Uh, So our warm-up was supposed to be 20 minutes. We wound up stealing 55, thank goodness. And everybody's on board, of course. Everybody's on board. We love it because we know this is the foundation that elite performance is going to come from. And surprisingly enough, it doesn't matter what sport I'm working in or what level of athletes we're working with, there always is some kind of deficit in movement patterns or movement skills or movement abilities. And what you have to understand is it's all trainable. It is 100% trainable. All you need is the time and the subjects willing to put in the effort. So if you can get that time, um, you need to focus on movement. And that's why that warm-up period is so important. It's the most precious time, I think, that we have with our athletes. And I'm talking grassroots moms and dads who are just volunteer coaching right up to our elite rep travel teams, to our collegiate high school teams, to uh, varsity minor league pro teams, and even our pro guys. That warm-up is so important if you use it properly. Guaranteed, we know that it, if it's set up properly, you can reduce the risk of injury with a good warm-up. And if it's done properly, you can actually raise the level of readiness and actually improve sport performance uh, during that period. And some teams will call it an activation period. Some people will call it a readiness period. Some people just flat-out call it a warm-up. Whatever you call it, it's the same stuff but I like to use it as a training period. It is an invaluable period of time where you can actually reinforce movement patterns and athletic abilities, and you can also improve on any one of those. So on the first day here, as an example, we took 55 minutes just to go through how do you accelerate? How do you decelerate properly? How do you change directions forward to forward properly? How do you go from forwards to backwards properly? How do you generate lateral movement for optimization in terms of of range, but also in terms of your ability to react and change directions? There's an art form here. And if you teach this early on, 
everything else you do gets easier. And this is one of the most, I think, powerful things that we do for our athletes because as soon as they connect the dots between that type of training and their position in sport, oh my goodness, it is, uh, the returns are, are disproportionate to what you put in. It is incredible. It's an exponential sort of a term. There's a compound effect here that is uncalculable. You, it's almost impossible to predict. And it's different for every athlete, of course. We know athletes come from different backgrounds, their previous training, their biological, chronological ages. So many factors play in here, but it impacts everybody right now. That's the beautiful thing. And whether they're going to be late developers and take time or whether they eat it up and understand it right away, which typically our older pro athletes do, they get it. And I can tell you right now, with to the man or the woman, any athlete we've worked with, older athlete that we've worked with and started teaching this, they've said, why haven't I been shown this before? And we're seeing it more and more now. Thank goodness. It's out there getting out there more and more. But ground-based movement. Teach your athletes how to react with the ground and then help them connect the dots into their position. It doesn't matter whether we're talking professional football. We do this exact same thing with our pro football guys. Position by position. Our offensive linemen, man, we work in a five-by-five five square, but we teach this stuff. Our wide receivers, our running backs, our quarterbacks, oh, especially love the quarterbacks. Fun. But position by position for position players as well, or in baseball, soccer, hockey, this transfers onto the ice. So the great thing about hockey and the snow sports, like our skiers, is not only do you train this on the ground, ground-based dry land, you also get to train it in their crazy environments, which is the ice and snow, unnatural. And it transfers over like you wouldn't believe. So that's why we spend so much time doing that. And if you get a chance to check out our Instagram account, uh, Crush Performance, I'm posting some of this online now because we've had too many people asking. And and what we're going to start doing, just so you know, and, and let, let, let us know if you want this type of information because we're going to seriously consider posting videos and sharing this information um, so we can help as many athletes as possible. Whether you're a recreational athlete, whether you're playing just for fun, whether you have aspirations of travel teams, college scholarships, or professional sport, or representing your country in the Olympics, this stuff is important. Unfortunately, it gets skipped over because we're so, so concentrated on skill development, skill development, game and play and competition that we really, really, I think, and I'll say this, I've said this before and I'll say it again, we're probably destroying more talent than we're creating in the greater picture of, of our support, uh, um, sporting organizations. So, okay, that's enough of a rant. Let's cut out for a break. When we come back, I want to get back to a conversation that's pretty pertinent right now. It's a conversation we had with the uh, great um, Dan Pink, uh, about his book Drive and it talks about motivation and how do you go about developing a culture where your athletes, your employees, your students uh, can really, really thrive. That's what it's all about and that's coming up right after this on Crush Performance. This is Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information with Jeff Crushell. Get in the action and text Crush at ten twelve sixty with your questions, comments or smart-ass remarks. And welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Kershell here. We're your weekly source for performance information. If you want to get in touch with us, reach out. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crushperformance is the email. Get to us with your questions, comments, or smart remarks. We love them all. Or if you have a topic or something you would like us to investigate, 
let us know. We've done it before. We've dedicated segments, even entire episodes to your ideas. Because as much as we like to get you guys thinking about things, you guys get us thinking about things and we absolutely love it. Speaking of thinking about things. So um, on my way over to Brazil, I read a fantastic article looking at organizational performance and successful cultures. And we know from all the research and all of our own work looking at high performers and successful cultures and and performance environments, there are common traits among those successful organizations, those successful teams, those successful businesses and that are consistent and they're consistent both ways. We see the consistent approach in organizations that are successful. We also see the consistent approach in organizations that aren't successful, the attitude of the workers, the motivation processes, the teamwork, and it all comes from good leadership, good leadership and good structure. And while leadership is critically important for making sure the environment and the procedures and the safety and the systems are in place, it's very, very important that the boots on the ground are providing feedback to the leadership to make sure they can do their jobs properly. And that's where a lot of the breakdown comes from. And it has to be a two-way street. It's as important that we get the feedback from the athletes, the players, the staff, the workers, so the leadership can provide the environment that we need to have in order to succeed and perform at the highest level possible. But it's missing more times than not. And then you have to attract the right people into your organization so you can become a top performer, which is turning out to be one of the great challenges in business, sport, and also in scholastics right now as academic institutions are battling to get the uh, top, top uh, academic students into the fold. And so uh, there's a lot of different issues here. But motivation and encouragement are critical components to successful environments. So I wanted to go back to a great conversation we had with Dan Pink, author, speaker, the host of the Pink Cast. You could check him out at danpink.com. So let's go back to that conversation right now. It's real, real important. It sets the tone for what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Here's our conversation with Dan Pink. Uh, Dan, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. We've been very interested in your works. Your very recent uh, book, uh, To Sell is Human, is fascinating. Uh, but I read Drive, the surprising truth about what motivates us. And of course, in the sporting world, we're always looking at ways to motivate people. And it's really interesting. Um, but, you know, if we go back to a whole new mind, if we could start the conversation there, why right-brainers will rule the future. I thought this was a real interesting concept when you first came up with it. Let's start there and figure out maybe from there how this applies to everything that's going on in the world today. Uh, yeah, well, that, that book makes an argument that in the, in the workplace, uh, the, the central abilities, the abilities that are most important are shifting. It used to be that the most important abilities were these kinds of uh, spreadsheet abilities, uh, very logical, linear, sequential kinds of abilities. But today, uh, those abilities can be outsourced and those abilities can be automated. And so what we have to do now is the sorts of things that computers can't do faster and smart people overseas can't do cheaper. And that ends up being things like artistry, empathy, inventiveness, design, big picture thinking, that those kinds of things, which we can think of kind of sort of metaphorically as right brain abilities, end up being more valuable. Ah, Very interesting. I think that's a human thing all in all. This could apply to virtually everything we do in life, don't you think, Dan? 
Uh, yeah, a lot of the things we yeah, certainly a lot of the things we do in life. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, we you know we've seen this. You know, it's it's a very common pattern in, in in history. So if you look at say the the industrial revolution, the industrial revolution basically automated muscle power. Okay, so a forklift can carry stuff a lot better, a lot a lot heavier stuff, a lot better, a lot longer than you and I could on our own. Uh, you know, despite your incredible background and strength conditioning, a forklift is still going to outperform you, right? <laughs> right. So, um, you know, and so what ha- what's happening now is that certain kinds of software are automating uh, certain cognitive processes, but they end up being the very kind of uh, simp- not not simple, but very uh, algorithmic, uh, recipe, uh, list-based kinds of things. Um, it, whether it's basic accounting, uh, even certain kinds of legal practice. Uh, even certain kinds of financial analysis. So just as we had to do things that, that fork, you know, we're not going to be able to beat a forklift at strength. We're not going to be able to beat a, soft, a piece of software or an algorithm at that kind of logical sequential reasoning. So what we have to do are things that, that software can't do, which at least right now ends up being more of these big picture, artistic, empathic things. Oh, interesting. We're talking with Dan Pink, author, speaker. You could check out all of Dan's information at danpink.com. Dan, I think it comes back to that idea you mentioned in Drive about this fixed-mindedness or fixedness, where people just can't seem to get out of what they've been doing to break into sort of this new approach and maybe even more efficient approach to what's going on right now or leading into the future. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, here's the thing, you know, that's, and that's not necessarily means that people are, 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 are dumb or lazy. What it means is that, you know, if, if I do something one way on a Wednesday, chances are I'm going to do it the exact same way on a Thursday. And so it's very hard sometimes to break those, to break those kinds of, break those kinds of patterns. And when it comes to motivation, Again, especially when we're motivating people on the job or in schools or, you know, as, as you know, as you as you have been talking about for a long time, you know, how do you motivate people on the baseball diamond or the basketball court or the hockey rink? We, we tend to think that the way to do it are these very controlling kinds of measures, whether, we, you know, we, we punish the behavior we don't want, we reward the behavior we do want. And what 50 years of behavioral science tells us is that, yeah, that's good for certain things, but it's actually not as great as we think it is. And what we're better off doing is um, focusing on a sense of autonomy, which is, you know, are you self-directed in how you're doing all this stuff? Focus on a sense of mastery. Are you constantly getting better at something that matters? And also on purpose. Do you know why you're doing it in the first place? And I guess the best line that somebody gave to me, and I think it applies with equal force to both business managers and baseball managers, you know, to, to, to coaches on the field as well as, you know, bosses in the office is that, you know, somebody said to me thinking about hiring, like, like if that person needs me to motivate them, then I don't want to hire them. And, you know, motivation isn't something that one person does to another at its heart. It's something that we each do for ourselves. Dan, that's very interesting, you know, because one of the things that we're always trying to tap into is helping people understand how they can get to the next level. And you're right. You're so right. If we have to motivate them, uh, it's almost an impossible task. Would you classify maybe motivation as one of those intangibles, one of those natural gifts that people can have? Or do you think it's a learned trait if we have them in the right environment, have your people in the right environment? You mean in terms of 
being motivated or motivating others? Well, maybe being motivated. Or do you think motivating others can lead to motivation? Does one lead to another, I guess, would be the, maybe the conversation yeah, yeah. to have. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's a really good, and it's a really important question, actually, because a lot of the decisions we make as teachers, as coaches, as parents, as bosses, uh, ultimately come down to that question that you're asking, um, which is, you know, what is human nature? Is Is human nature to be lazy and, um, um, uh, you know, not really wanting to work, not really being interested in stuff and therefore having to be controlled or is human nature to be active and engaged and actually seeking some self-direction. And my view of human nature is it's the second one that, that is human beings by their nature want to be autonomous and self-directed. And I say that not because, you know, I have some kind of fantasy about, the nobility of human beings, it's because if you look at kids, um, that's how kids are. You know, that's how we are out of the box. You know, I, you're not going to find a two-year-old. I defy you to find a two-year-old who's not self-directed, curious, and engaged, or a four-year-old who's not self-directed, curious, and engaged. That's our nature. And I, I think that, that people, you know, learn some of the habits of compliance they learn maybe to become dependent on control, um, and the, but, but I think our nature is to be autonomous and self-directed. That doesn't mean we're going to turn out that way. And so, you know, it's really, it's really a mix of both. But if you start as a teacher, a coach, a boss, a parent, whatever, with the premise that, yeah, you know what, most people actually do care. They want to do something worthwhile. They want to control their own lives. That's going to lead you down a path that might take a little bit longer but that ultimately is going to yield far better results. Huh, very interesting, Dan. Do you think that the way we have sort of our businesses set up, let's walk into any business or the majority of businesses across North America or in my world, almost every single sporting team from the little duffers right up to the professional guys, uh, we might have it wrong here. There seems to be a massive disconnect to what we know about you know, science and motivation and what we actually do here. And I guess that's one of the big messages in the book, Drive. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that because, you know, I've gotten a lot of feedback from, from coaches um, at both the, the collegiate here in the U.S. and, and even at the uh, professional, professional level uh, who have read the book and who, you know, and, and who have tried to take some of its principles and put them in place. And, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a couple of NBA coaches um, one, um, at least one that I know of, uh, NFL program, not much in baseball actually, but, um, uh, actually it's interesting now that I think about it. It's really, you know, a lot of basketball, uh, both in the a lot of basketball in the NBA, uh, and in, uh, the, here in the States, uh, at the collegiate level. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and you know, if we think about, you know, in pro sports, a lot of you know, everybody sees the glamour of television. What people don't understand is the grind of the travel, the practice, the groundhog day. Uh, that there's not days of the week anymore. Hey, it's an, it's a practice day and it's a game day. That's kind of how it works. And so motivation becomes a really, really important factor, even at the highest levels of sport. Absolutely, and you know, and and so why do they do? You know, so why do they do it? If you look at the really great athletes, and they, I don't know, we can stick with basketball for a second. Sure, whether it is. You know, LeBron or Steph Curry or, in his earlier days, Kobe Bryant. I think what fans don't see is just how much work these guys do. Exactly. To get good. If you only watch, you know, if you only watch those uh, 44, uh, 
44 minutes now or 48 minutes now of an NBA game, that's just a fraction of what these guys are doing. And, you know, you hear about like the really, really great players who are, you know, again, in basketball, who you know, are staying after practice and saying, I'm going to hit 53 pointers before I go in and shower, or I'm going to take 50 additional free throws before I go in and shower, even though practice is officially uh, practice is officially over. And that's the sort of thing that's all about mastery, about, you know, how do you get a little bit better at something that really matters to you? Hey, Dan, do you think that that has a lot to do with the environment that the coaches or the boss or the middle manager of a business downtown uh, really provides for the workers? Because just think about these people who are working at a desk every day, answering phones or dealing with customers. That's a hard environment to actually practice in and to imagine how do I get better at this job without any legitimate practice time? It's not like sport at all. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And so... You know, and, and this is why, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about sports, in contrast to other kinds of things, and your example is a great one, is, you know, with sports, there is always feedback. You, you know, you're, you're on the, you're, you know, you're playing for the Blue Jays, you're already dicky and you pitch and the ball just, you know, you throw a ball or a strike, all right? You're, you're Jose Batista and, you know, you're having that bad. You either get on or you get out. And so, and, and one of the things that is very clear in the research on mastery is that mastery depends on feedback. The only way to get better at something is to get information on how you're doing. And I think one of the draws of sports, one reason that we play sports, even as amateurs, you know, what, you know, why would I go out and play pickup basketball? Why would I go out and play softball? It's not like I'm going to, you know, I mean, it's embarrassing in a way you know, how bad I am, but why do I do it? Well, I do it because maybe today I can get a little bit, maybe today I can get a little bit, uh, get, get a little bit better at this. And, you know, on a basketball court or on a baseball diamond, you get feedback all the time. And, and unfortunately those people in offices, you know, um, often, you know, the way that they get feedback is with an annual performance review. So, you know, once a year they get feedback on how they're doing. Imagine, you know, uh, 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 you know, Le, you know, uh, LeBron James getting feedback once a year, or you know, that guy Kane for the Chicago Blackhawks sure. getting feedback once a year. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. You'd say, "What? That's not how it works." Uh, it's interesting, you know, and this is sort of some maybe insights into these successful performance environments we see. We're talking with Dan Pink, author, speaker. You can check Dan out at danpink.com. Uh, Dan, let's talk about this. You know, the, the the performance environment. You know, maybe we get complacent. Maybe we get caught up into the into the, the drudgery of the day, doing the same thing every single day. It's the same for everybody. It's sort of a human thing. Uh, what are some of the strategies you talk about in terms of, you know, keeping it fresh for people. You know, you talk about the three key elements, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I think if somebody really went and deliberately worked those three elements into their environment, you would have so much more productivity and probably compliance that you'd be amazed. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, it's a good question. There are some, there are some interesting things that say, you know, a manager or teacher uh, or even a coach can, can do. I mean, one of my favorites, let's talk about purpose because purpose seems a little bit abstract to people. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that comes out in this in the research in behavioral science is that you know, explaining to people why they're doing something increases their performance. So, so if you have things like some, so Adam Grant at the University of Pennsylvania has done some great research showing that 
if people who are, say, raising money, raise, you know, raising funds for a university scholarship fund, actually meet people who have received scholarships or even read letters from people who have received scholarships, they raise more money uh, because they know why they're doing it. You know, they know why they're doing it in the first place. There's some great research out of Harvard showing that when cooks can actually see their customers um, in a cafeteria, that the quality of their food increases because, they, okay, that's why I'm here. I'm here to satisfy that person. I'm here to like, make that person's life better. Um, and so one so circling back to your, the question itself, if you're a manager or a coach, teacher, whatever, one of the s- simplest things you can do and, and, and I, is just, you know, think about it in a given week, um, have two fewer conversations about how to do something and two more conversations about why to do it. So, you know, because bosses and teachers and coaches love to say, here's how, here's how, you know, here's how you do a quadratic equation. Here's how you make a sales call. Here's how you hit a fastball. You know, here, here's how you hit a, hit a, hit a, uh, 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 cutter. Sure. And, and, and that's important. Okay. That's important. But it's sort of, you got to take a step back and say, okay, why are we doing it in the first place? Why does it matter that you learn a quadratic equation? Why does it matter? that the sales call is successful. Why does it matter to you as an athlete that you're able to hit uh, a cutter? And if, if you have two fewer conversations about how and two more about why, I think you'll see an uptick in performance. And as bosses, again, as, uh, as bosses and teachers and coaches, we're just obsessed with the how, and we very rarely take a step back and say, okay, why are we doing this in the first place? What's the point of the exercise? Dan Pink, very interesting stuff. If people want to get more information on you, it can go to danpink.com. Hey, we really appreciate your time today, and we'll look forward to talking to you in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. I appreciate it. And there you have it. A fantastic conversation with Dan Pink. So much to take away from that. It was one of the great crush conversations. We'll be looking forward to having Dan on again. We've got to get get back with him. He's been doing some fantastic work since we talked to him last. But let's cut out for a quick break. When we come back, let's discuss this conversation and see how it ties into the world of sport, your performance. And let's try to decide what we need to do to help you tap into and raise your ceiling of potential. Let's talk about it right after this on Crush Performance. If you have any performance questions, comments, or smart remarks, text Crusher at 10-12-60 and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Now, here he is, the Crusher. And welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Crushell here, the con man behind the glass. We are your weekly source for performance information. Reach out to us. Crushperformance.com is the website. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Check out our Instagram. As I mentioned, we're starting to post there more and more. I'm getting actually... Well, I'm not getting good at it, but I'm getting better at it. Uh, Search out Crush Performance for our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channels. Uh, We're going to be posting more and more on those mediums for sure. Uh, But a great discussion here today. We kicked off talking about uh, the Crush (laughs) Summer Performance Tour, and it's continuing on. What a fantastic summer it's been as we travel the globe, just spreading the good word and trying to help athletes, coaches, and organizations tap into their potential. And it starts at the top, and it goes right down to the individuals, and then it goes back into that team environment. And that's why that discussion that we just had with Dan Pink was so important. That's a couple years old now, but, oh boy, it is timeless. It is absolutely timeless. And if you get a chance, uh, go on uh, YouTube and check out Dan's uh, TEDx talk. It is fantastic. I, I don't know how many... 
tens of millions and maybe hundreds of millions of views it has now, but it is a really, really good one. And if you're a coach or a, an employer, a boss, a manager, um, even if you're an athlete where you've got to manage your own performance team, this is a great discussion to have because I think it might get you thinking about things that you don't normally think about. And we kind of finished off the discussion there in our first segment talking about the priorities of development. And, and I think we really do have to understand that the athlete has to come first. We need to spend more time developing our athletes and then working that skill set into the technical, tactical, and talent development needed to be successful in sport. And that's why at the younger ages, it is so, so important to play multiple sports. And as a matter of fact, talking about articles we've read, and that's kind of what spurred on the, the desire to talk about the, that um, Dan Pink conversation. Uh, there was a great article in The Athletic about Aaron Judge and how playing multiple sports has, as, a, as a young developing athlete has served him so well in baseball. And it's a, time, it's a time, timeless tale that we've heard many, many times about athletes who played multiple sports, who could have gone multiple directions, but they picked one that they were passionate about. And then also, of course, there's the Tiger Woods stories, the Serena Williams stories. There's, you know, the Federer stories where, you know, there's been one sport for their entire lives. That can work as well. We just know the odds are better for athletes that play multiple sports. And that's an important factor when we look at our developmental system. Specializing early is a dangerous, dangerous affair. So when we look at, you know, the long-term development programs, there's a period of just sampling. And that's so important if we're going to maximize talent down the road. But if you are a specialized athlete, the strength and conditioning and athlete development program becomes even more critical because it now has to compensate for what you're not getting by playing other sports. It has to make up for movement patterns and experiences, reactions and team and individual experiences in sport that you don't get because you're not playing those other sports. So getting into a great developmental program is really important for those athletes that are specializing early. It will help reduce injuries, help reduce burnout. And let's face it, anytime an athlete is getting better, it doesn't matter if you're recreational, if you're drop dead serious, or even if you're a pro, if you're getting better, you're having fun. And again, that's why that warm up is so important. And structuring that warm up so you're actually teaching things on a day to day basis because every single day, I can guarantee that our athletes, it doesn't matter if we are together eight months a year, we're looking for ways to get better. And if it's just a matter of that warm up, getting them prepared to maximize their performance on the field or the ice or the snow, well, that's, that's great. That's really great because they appreciate that. But if you can work in some form of development into that precious, precious warm up phase, that warm up period, where you kick off your day, oh man, you got him. You got him. What a great conversation piece that is. Dan Pink mentioned a couple things there in terms of motivation and what motivates people, and we've got it wrong. What we know about motivation and encouraging people and, and getting them motivated to you know, do things that are, might be a little bit uncomfortable um, isn't what we thought. And sporting organizations, businesses, even schools are getting it wrong. We think that money might be a motivator. Well, it's not. Studies have proven time and time again that more money does not equal better performance. What does? Input. Input. Autonomy. 
um, control of your future. There's people who will take less pay if they have more control over their day-to-day activities. And one of the things that I have found in our programs is that once you get the athlete involved in the developmental conversation, in their personal developmental conversation, and even in the team approach, oh man, you've got buy-in at every single level. It might be as simple as, you know, 13-year-old soccer players. Hey, guys, we've got five practices this week and two games or whatever it might be. What should we work on as a team? But getting them involved is critical. And we see that in basically every skill set. In every area there's humans trying to get better, we see that phenomenon where athletes, our employees, our students are more engaged if they have more control. And so that's where we kind of have to reset and rethink about, you know, what's motivating and what we're trying to accomplish on our day-to-day programming. And the article that I read was about, was about trust, trust in the workplace and how performance cultures have higher levels of trust than cultures that don't. And that trust might not be what you think. It's not trust like leaving your wallet around, though that's important. You should be able to leave your wallet around and not have to worry about um, missing five bucks or putting your lunch in the uh, lunchroom and uh, Joe taking your uh, tuna sandwich and you go in there, there's no tuna sandwich. That's, that's part of it for sure. But trust to work freely. Trust that you know if you're, if you're gonna try something that might be a little risque or a little out of the norm and it doesn't quite work out, you're not going to get punished or, or, or criticized. You're going to be okay. It's okay to experiment. That's why you look at organizations like Google. Man, those guys are pushing the bounds. Their, their moonshot program, their Google X programs where you know they're trying everything. They're investing money literally to see what won't work so it can guide them down a path of what might work. It's the same thing in sport. I think we see this all the time, especially with talented athletes. Sometimes we get into organizations where uh, we're afraid to make adjustments or even suggest adjustments because we're not sure how it will turn out and what happens if it turns an athlete the other way. That is risky business. I will grant you that for sure. But I think we know enough now about human performance and development that it's okay to take a step back as long as it's smart and strategic. A change or an adjustment in an athlete program or an athlete training um, um, principles or the plan that you've developed for your athlete, it may cause a slight step back, but hopefully to only result in five steps forward. That's the process of development. And if your organization doesn't allow you to do that, well, that's a long, hard road for certain, for certain. Okay, listen, we are dead out of time here. I want to thank you guys for tuning in today. Great discussion. Love the feedback. Please get it to us, crushperformance.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. I want to thank Dan Pink again for that incredible discussion. We'll look forward to having Dan on here this fall. And coming up in the next few weeks, we've got some really, really important shows uh, we're putting together. We're going to be talking specialization. We're going to be talking injury and, and recovery and return to play protocols with some of the best medical minds around. And we're also going to be talking about uh, performance and the Olympics, which are right around the corner. Tokyo 2020, the road to Tokyo is well underway. And we're going to be talking a lot about that because, boy, you know, being again, once again, being around these Olympic athletes once again after so many years, 
was a real, real treat. It's different than professional sports, and I love it all. So we're going to try to share with you as much of that as possible. So thanks again for tuning in, everybody. We'll be back next week. And until then, remember, we're here to help you think like an athlete. This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Richard asks, Chris, in your view, ever since the 28-3 lead in the Super Bowl where the Patriots came back to win in overtime, do you sense that teams are getting tight whenever teams have a huge lead against the Patriots? It's not that teams are getting tight because they're the Patriots, because the history of success, it's why. The Patriots are the best in all of football, certainly the best in the NFL. Football is a strategic league much, strategic league much more than college. They are the best at in-game adjustments. So even when you have success early against them and you have a lead, they can work their way back into some games better than most. Teams are aware of that, but often have a difficult time adjusting to their adjustments. So in essence, it, it seems like teams are tightening up. And to some degree, they are. But what's happening in greater detail to understand it is not because they fear of anything, but that they adjust and they don't they're not able to keep up because the Patriots are usually one move ahead. So it's a constant. Okay, they're getting back. We've got to make an adjust. They're already making adjustments to that already. And that that becomes a problem because they're getting back in games even when you're taking a lead on them. Tom Brady can change tempo and go from 80 to 20 pass to 80 to 20 run. They can speed it up, slow it down, work all layers of the field, isolate coverage adjustments and flaws, get the ball out quickly, run four minute, run two minute. So even though you have early success, it's tough to do it for four quarters. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.